This is Greater Gospel Temple, the Church of Praise and Worship and Inspiration of God Ministries, right here on Anchor Podcast and all the other media outlets in the social world here. You can reach me at ggtchurch66 at yahoo.com through email and or the phone number 469-629-9543. And we are continuing the battleground. And the battleground is the heavenly places. And this information comes from the book that none should perish by Ed Saloso. And I am continuing this series because it's very important that we study and learn and know the enemy's devices, his wicked devices. And I will do my prayer, dear God, as I sit before or stand before you and speak, I pray to you that my soul you will keep. And if I should die before I finish, I pray that any outstanding sins will be forgiven by me. We are now going to talk about Satan's counter attack. We know that he has no power. He cannot question God. He cannot overpower Jesus. He does not have permission to defeat us. All the power has been taken from him by God. And Satan is under the feet of Jesus. So Satan's counterattack. The battle lines have been drawn. What's Satan's strategy? Since he was dispossessed of authority by Jesus and confined under his feet by God, he needs a place to stand over, a jurisdiction over which he can exercise authority. He cannot go to Jesus for this, since Jesus stripped him of his weapons and made a public spectacle of his army, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us and which was hostile to us and he has taken it out of the way having nailed it to the cross when he had disarmed the rulers and authorities he made a public display of them having triumphed over them through him you can find that in colossians the second chapter the 14th and the 15th verses Satan's only option is to try to deceive the church. God's agent on earth into yielding to him what has been entrusted to her care by God, much like what he did to Eve and then Adam in the garden. So remember, one of his weapons is deception. He's the master of deception, okay? 
Now this is why the church is exhorted to put on the full armor of God and to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Ephesians 6 verse 11 Satan has no power. This is why he must resort to deception in order to obtain that which he has no right to. The church, which is the target of his scheme, or this scheme, is never told by Satan the whole truth regarding the proposed transaction. Remember that he never tells the whole truth. Okay? And I remember Elder Davis uh, had uh, the gift of uh, casting out demons and devils. And so he told me about a time that uh, he was, they were casting out de uh, demons and devils. And, and so somebody said, said the devil was lying. And that devil spoke through that person and said the devil said the devil don't lie all the time. And so what I'm saying to you here, and it's proof that he will tell a part of it, and it can be true, but he won't tell all of it. Okay? So Satan has no power. This is why he must resort to deception in order to obtain that which he has no right to. The church, which is the target of this scheme, is never told by Satan the whole truth regarding the proposed transaction. This is Satan's usual approach. For instance, when Eve ate the forbidden fruit, she thought she was doing something innocuous when in reality she was initiating a process that would eventually transfer the dominion of the earth to her master's enemy. This is why Satan has chosen another seemingly innocuous weapon to use against the church. What is Satan's weapon? anger. The anger that Paul refers to in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 26 is not Satan's anger, but that of Christians primarily directed at each other. In Ephesians 4 verses 26 and 27, Paul warns believers not to let the sun go down on their anger and thus give the devil an opportunity. Paul does not say not to get angry. He says when you are angry, do not sleep on it. Deal with it immediately. Apply grace and so eliminate the source of your agent. Anger, like the desire that drove Eve to eat the forbidden fruit, is a normal emotion because anger touches us so much and so often, we fail to see, like Eve in the garden, that what appears like a minor problem 
can in reality be a major scheme of Satan that has terrible and eternal consequences. The word opportunity is used here as a place or region. It is the Greek word topos from which we get our English word topography. It can also be trans translated office, suggesting an area of jurisdiction. A jurisdiction is a sphere, S-P-H-E-R-E, of influence entrusted to someone. What Paul is saying is, do not fail to forgive those that hurt you lest you create an area of jurisdiction for the devil to have authority over. So this is the jurisdiction that Satan so desperately needs in order to do war against the church. In the context of Ephesians, that jurisdiction is located in the heavenlies. As soon as such a jurisdiction is created, Satan and his demons are able to invade the heavenly places from where they had been previously displaced. They are able to do this because Christians, through unresolved anger, deny the validity of the example described in Ephesians chapter 3 verses 9 and 10 by depriving each other of grace. Instead of forgiving, they choose to make the offender pay for the offense. When Christians fail to forgive their offenders, in reality, they are withholding grace from them. Since Christians are set in the heavenlies as a testimony and an example of God's grace to the rulers and authorities, when they deny grace to each other, they invalidate their testimony. They are no longer an example. The new life is not in evidence, but the old self is. They behave like the children of wrath and disobedience they once were when Satan ruled unimpeded over them. In essence, Christians have reverted to the old pattern used by Satan to control their behavior inside the cosmic grave. By inserting the old disket where the new one should be, Satan is able to use God's hardware to print his program on God's paper. What a clever scheme. And what he said in, in that time they used discs, but now we use what is it? Memory cards. Yes. Okay. So when we connect the unresolved anger mentioned in Ephesians, the fourth chapter, the twenty-seventh verse, with the resulting grieving of the Holy Spirit described in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 30, we immediately see a highly destructive combination. These two elements allow the devil and his forces of wickedness 
to move into jurisdictions in the heavenly places created by our disobedience. Because Satan cannot challenge Jesus' authority, he then challenges the church in the realm of delegated authority. In essence, it is a repeat of what he did in the Garden of Eden. Basically, these are the only two moves available to the devil to orchestrate a counterattack. Christians, angry at each other, no longer walk in the light and therefore fellowship is broken. This, in turn, prevents the blood of Jesus from cleansing them from all unrighteousness. And you can see 1 John, the first chapter and the seventh verse. Because of those sins, the Holy Spirit is grieved and the fullness of Christ in the church as it sits in the heavenly places becomes compromised. It is reasonable to assume that as the fullness of Christ expressed by the church decreases, the influence of the prince of the power of the air increases in heavenly places. That is why when Satan has the upper hand in a city, we always find a church that is deeply divided with members, congregations and denominations angry at each other. Consequently, it is futile to try to win a city for Christ without first resolving the anger expressed in divisions among Christians in that city. Paul stated this in 1 Timothy, the second chapter, and the eighth verse, when he listed the need to eliminate wrath, W-R-A-T-H, and dissension as a prerequisite to reach all men through prayer evangelism. Jesus stated clearly in John the 17th chapter and the 21st verse that the unity of the church is essential for the world to believe. The battleground is in the heavenly places. That is where we must stand firm against the schemes of the devil. If we have already succumbed to his scheme, we must void the jurisdiction we created for him to have authority and immediately retake the lost ground. Now we'll talk about the trigger. T-R-I-G-G-E-R. What is it that causes so much anger among Christians? Without doubt, it is most often something that is said. The trigger that fires this kind of anger, as described in Ephesians, the fourth chapter, the 26th and 27th verses, is what Paul calls unwholesome words in Ephesians 4 verse 29 
Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, that it may give grace to those who hear. This trigger, unwholesome words, is so subtle and so well disguised that it amounts to a state-of-the-art scheme. In many ways, we have come to believe that words are of little consequence. We may say, talk is cheap, but every major relational tragedy is set in motion by unwholesome words. Those words like a tsunami taking place undetected in the deepest part of the ocean, trigger a chain of events that eventually destroy the effectiveness of our stand against Satan. Now, what is the definition of unwholesome words? According to this verse, it is that which tears down rather than builds up truth without grace. It is telling the truth devoid of edification according to the need of the moment. Ephesians 4 verse 29 To do so is more cruel than choosing not to meet the need at hand. It is definitely far worse than that. It is making sure that the need is highlighted by the raw edge of truth and then made more painfully evident by withholding the grace needed to meet such need. The object is clear to tear down. In so doing, we become Exhibit A for the accuser of the brethren. And that's Revelations 12, chapter, uh, 12th chapter and the 10th verse. We are more easily offended by the truth than by lies. If someone says something false about us, it hurts us, but somehow we are able to sleep in peace because we know deep down that there is no substance to it. However, when someone says something critical that we know is true, partially or totally true, it makes us angry and takes away our sleep. We feel judged and condemned them because somebody has voiced something that may still be true but was spoken without grace. I'll repeat that. We feel judged and condemned because somebody has forced something that may still be true, but was spoken without grace. It may be something with which we desperately need to deal, a weak point where we need to change, something we have continually tried to suppress in light of our inability to correct it. 
but telling the naked truth without grace is tantamount to passing judgment. Mm -hmm. Truth without grace is devastating. For instance, if you remove God's grace from my life, all that is left is a wretched sinner. I do not want to face that kind of naked truth. Likewise, truth without grace can be enslaving. For instance, in Matthew the 18th chapter and the 18th verse, we are told in a context of broken relationships, whatever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. The context refers to two people who have had a disagreement. Jesus instructs the one who seems to be in the right to seek the other party out for the purpose of effecting reconciliation. If he is not successful, he is instructed to take two witnesses and repeat the procedure. If that fails, he should engage the church. If the offending party does not hear the church's admonition, he should be considered a Gentile and a tax collector. Okay, it says they say have no fellowship with them, okay? Now, in Matthew, the 18th chapter, the 15th through 20th verse, is a favorite passage to deal with broken relationships in the church. Unfortunately, it seems that every time people choose to follow the procedures outlined in Matthew the 18th chapter, rather than fixing the relationship, they make it worse. Why? I believe, according to the author, because we fail to incorporate grace to the truth under discussion. So when someone has done a wrong to us, we go to that person, with a certain degree of anger and confront him with the truth. When that person refuses to repent on our terms, we take two witnesses who usually are close friends of ours, not so much to effect reconciliation, but to document the offender's refusal to repent. When he does not respond the way we demanded, we then take it to the church, a church that the other party no longer attends. The church usually writes a letter to the offending person outlining his disobedience and gives him a certain time to repent. When he does not repent, the church now considers the offending Christian a Gentile and a tax collector. And some churches have used these two terms, Gentile and tax collector, as synonyms for unbelievers so they can justify themselves in pursuing a lawsuit in secular court. Why is it that in following biblical procedure, we usually make the problem worse? I believe it is because we fail to discern the intent of the procedure outlined in Matthew the 18th chapter, 
the 15th through the 20th verses. We are given the option to bind or to release, and we usually choose to bind. Please notice the context. In the parable of the lost of sheep, in Matthew 18th chapter, 10 through the 14th verses, we have Jesus' clear admonition that God does not want any one of those sheep to perish. Following the passage, dealing with the discipline issue, we have the parable of two debtors. And that's Matthew the 18th chapter, 21st through 35th verses. Notice that the king became very angry with the party that was right because of the party's failure to release the offending party. I believe a better way to deal with the issue is that once we have exhausted all the avenues for reconciliation, we release the offender rather than bind him. As Stephen did in Acts 7, and as Jesus did while hanging on the cross, we should pray for God not to count the offender's sin against him. By doing this, we are sending grace to the offender and to the devil. Satan hates nothing more than grace because grace neutralizes his most effective weapon, sin. Where sin abounds, grace overflows. Every time somebody offends us, we should forgive that person unilaterally because in so doing, we take the truth of that offense and wrap it in grace. It is amazing how grace changes evil deeds into monuments to goodness. Jesus did this when he took man's evil deeds at Calvary and changed them into God's gateway of grace. But what about the terms Gentile and tax collector? What about them? A Gentile is someone who is outside of God's covenant with God's people. And a tax collector is a member of God's people who is working for the enemy. These two categories are worthy of pity. I believe that what Jesus is saying is to be merciful to them. Have pity on them because they are working for the enemy. Release them. Do not bind them. Do not ignore the truth of their misdeeds, but rather use that truth to bind them and make them pay as the slave did in the parable of the two debtors. Add grace to that truth and turn it into a blessing. By adding grace to Saul of Tarsus, Stephen changed him into Paul of Antioch. Truth plus grace is a powerful combination. Truth always has two sides. The greater the truth, the further apart those sides are. When it comes to the truth itself, Jesus, no single person on earth, can claim a corner on his understanding. 
Okay, I want to repeat that. When it comes to the truth itself, Jesus, no single person on earth can claim a corner on its understanding. However, so many times self-appointed proponents and guardians of that truth claim the right to its full understanding. This is tantamount, excuse me, this is tantamount to their considering themselves greater than the truth itself and their positioning themselves over the truth to instruct others that in their estimation lack the complete understanding that they ascribe to themselves. Ridiculous. No wonder the Bible warns us that knowledge puffs up. And the New International Version, that's the translation of 1 Corinthians 8 chapter in the first verse. This is so serious that in Ephesians, the fourth chapter in the third verse, Paul exhorts us, primarily the ministers, to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. He doesn't say in the bond of common doctrine or denominational allegiances or truth as we understand it. He says peace. This is because when brethren who differ on important issues are at peace with each other, they are then able to grow together in the understanding of the truth. Not for the sake of proving their particular point of view, but for the sake of what truth spoken in a context of grace does. It sets people free. Now we go into the offensive and defensive warfare. The spiritual warfare in the heavenly places to which we are called is both defensive and offensive. One of the arguments separating evangelicals from charismatics is the stand firm approach of the former in context to the retake approach of the latter. Evangelicals emphasize that the thrust in Ephesians is to maintain the ground already conquered. Therefore, they object to the militancy of charismatics who, in the evangelicals' minds, are chasing too many devils in too many places. Charismatics counter this criticism with a record of victories and spiritual advances hard to deny. They spell out a constant and consistent stream of testimonies that seem to validate their emphasis on taking or retaking ground formerly possessed by the enemy. I see no contradiction in these positions. This according to the writer, okay? 
Now when the church moves into an area for the first time, it must attack rather than defend. The target area is under Satan's domain and he must be evicted. The only way to evict an entrenched enemy is by moving in and taking over his foxholes. This is what the early church did in Jerusalem. You can see uh, Acts the second chapter through the sixth chapter. In Samaria, Simon the Musician. You can see that in, in Acts the eighth chapter. In Ephesus, you can see Acts the nineteenth chapter. And eventually, in every new region it entered. Moreover, in Ephesians the sixth chapter, Paul associates the preaching of the gospel with intercession. And we can look at the 6th chapter of Ephesians, the 15th, the 19th, and the 20th verse. And the struggle against principalities, you can see that in Ephesians, the 6th chapter, the 12th, 18th, and 19th verses. It always takes a power encounter of some sort to establish the church for the first time. Because the church has to displace the existing satanic structure. This validates the Charismatic's perspective. However, once the ground has been taken, the church must immediately switch to a defensive mode and turn the conquering army into a defending army. This is the setting in which Paul's epistle to the Ephesians was written. Okay? This is a setting that it was written in. Failure to do so may result in the position being overrun by the recently evicted enemy. Standing firm is a must. And Ephesians 6 chapter and the 14th verse tells us that. Otherwise, a back door as big as the front door will develop, causing the church to lose the sprouting seeds to the birds of the sky, and that is Satan and his demons, as described in the parable of the sword in Mark the fourth chapter, the third through the twentieth verses. All of this gives credence to the evangelicals' perspective. Now, when the church fails to defend its conquered position, Satan conducts a counterattack and retakes the ground. This was the case with the church in Galatia. Paul rebuked them and asked them, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? That's Galatians, the third chapter and the first verse. The term bewitch is a direct reference to satanic activity. In a case like this, an offensive move is required inside the church to repel Satan's attack. This, in turn, validates the charismatic's approach. No wonder Paul used the term struggle to describe the relationship between the church and the forces of wickedness. When I shared these insights, this is uh, the writer talking, on the heavenly places with Cindy Jacobs, 
a dear friend, and a worldwide intercessory prayer leader. She asked me a question that helped me refine the offensive, defensive, offensive thrust better. As I explained how the people transferred out of Satan's cosmic grave are inducted into the church, which in turn evicts Satan and his forces for wickedness, of wickedness, and his forces of wickedness, excuse me, forcing them to be confined under the feet of Jesus. I overemphasize the defensive posture to which the church is then called. And I'm going back to where he explained this. He said, as I explained how the people transferred out of Satan's cosmic grave are inducted into the church, which in turn evicts Satan and his forces of wickedness, forcing them to be confined under the feet of Jesus, I overemphasize the defensive posture to which the church is being called. And then he says, remembering Cindy saying, but Ed, where is the place for the intercessors? My intercessors. She's, she is the president and founder of Generals of Intercession. And she spoke like a general whose division was about to be mothballed. Intercessors are very active in the church today, she continued. And they usually conduct offensive missions that are absolutely necessary. Where do they fit if all the church must do is defend? And he says that she had a point, and it's an important point. Offensive operations must be conducted inside the perimeter of the church if and when that perimeter has been infiltrated by the enemy. And we can see that in Colossians, the fourth chapter, the 12th verse. And then we can compare Philippians, the fourth chapter, the second and third verses. And then Ephesians, the sixth chapter, the 19th and 20th verses. Charismatics and evangelicals are really both looking at two different sides of the same coin. In order to see the whole of the coin, the W-H-O-L-E, okay? Both perspectives are needed. That is why Paul says in Ephesians 6, chapter 10, verse, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. The word and here is a key word. It indicates that to be strong in the Lord and to be strong in the strength of his might are two different though complementary things. The first one could be interpreted as describing primarily a defensive mode. We take refuge in the Lord. We hide under His mighty hand. We take our position in Christ. We abide in Him. The second aspect, although present within the first one, is more forceful and is used when confronting the enemy. It is the power of His might working through us that enables us to defeat the forces of wickedness entrenched in the heavenly places over the city or region.
traditionally evangelical have dwelt on being strong in the Lord while charismatic have specialized in the power of his might. It is not either or, it is both. Historically, both groups have often faced each other in severe anger. Both groups fail to see how weak they are in the areas where traditionally they have been thought to be strong. In 1985, and he goes to talk about Argentina, I hosted in Argentina one of the most brilliant evangelical Bible teachers of our time. His local congregation numbered in the thousands and more than 100 radio stations carried his program daily. His books had blessed countless thousands. As he toured the country and saw literally thousands of new converts all over, he repeatedly reminded me of the need for more Bible teaching. I had no problem with that. However, he also began to impeach the genuineness of some of the ministries to which I introduced him. He questioned them because he did not see the kind of Bible exposition he considered essential for those ministries to be authentic. When I pointed out to him that many of these ministries have been around for quite some time and that thousands of believers attested to their solidity, he went into a tirade about the absolute necessity of more, much more, expository Bible teaching. Now this is the author, it's Savoso. Okay, this is his story. When I pointed to the rich prayer life of those believers, which no doubt surpassed his own prayer life, he dismissed it as an exercise in emotionalism. Bible teaching, he repeated, there must be more Bible teaching. Now, I'm a Multnomah School of the Bible Guy, ordained at Peninsula Bible Church in Palo Alto, California, by the late Ray Stedman, one of the finest Bible expositors trained in Dallas Theological Seminary. I am a man of the book, and I believe in Bible teaching. Sensing that my guest was abusing truth, I decided to try to sober him up a little bit. I asked him, is Bible teaching the answer? Yes, he replied. Are you a Bible teacher? I asked. Yes, he said. Are you a good Bible teacher? And if so, is your congregation well taught? I inquired. Absolutely, he declared. Well, I said, how about inviting John Wimber to do a healing seminar at your church? Never, he said. Why not? I asked. He'll mess up everything and everyone. I said, if Bible teaching is the answer, 
if you are a good Bible teacher and your people have been well taught for years, how can John Wimber mess them up in just one weekend? He had no reply. The area where he thought he was the strongest was really the weakest. On the other hand, charismatics usually see themselves as experts in regard to the person and the gifts of the Holy Spirit. If there is one area where they have considered themselves strong, it is in matters pertaining to the Holy Spirit. However, this is not always so. A charismatic leader was invited to speak at a conservative church. In the course of her ministry there, she spoke in tongues into the microphone to the dismay of the pastor who invited her. She went on to utter prophetic words, something the church was not used to, and tried to do something charismatic to bring into evidence the Holy Spirit's presence. Needless to say, it was not a positive experience. When I asked her why she did this, she replied, I was so full of the Holy Spirit that I could not contain myself. Really? I do not think so. Quite the contrary. I believe that this expert on the Holy Spirit was so insecure about it that she went into all those displays to prove to herself that he was there. Like the conservative Bible, Bible expositor, she revealed a weakness right at the center of her perceived strength. The only way to maximize the strengths and cancel out the weaknesses is by together speaking the truth in love. Ephesians 4 verse 16. On the other hand, evangelicals and charismatics are strong in areas where traditionally they view each other as weak. For instance, charismatics, whom many evangelicals would consider inferior, in the area of Bible exposition, know a lot more about what the Bible teaches about angels, miracles, the gifts of the spirit, and body life. At the same time, evangelicals, whom many charismatics would perceive as weaker in the area of practical faith, score higher when it comes to having faith in the most difficult circumstances, when God chooses to remain silent or to say no in a context of crisis. Obviously, we all are members of the same body and no particular member can boast. We are interdependent. Now we go to the section where it works. So we're still talking about the battleground is in heavenly places. We're at war. We're at war. We're at war. It works.
in Mexico in May of 1993. More than 100 pastors and leaders publicly repented for the division caused in the church by their anger at each other. They all knelt down and said a prayer of repentance. Then they asked forgiveness of the church for having taught her the wrong way. Finally, they embraced each other. As they did so, the power and presence of God became very tangible. Emotional, spiritual, and even physical healing took place right then and there. The blood of Jesus was finally flowing unimpeded, and all unrighteousness and its consequences was being washed away. The balance of power, power, the balance of power was altered in the heavenlies. Since then, City Hall has become to has begun to open up to the church. A new positive atmosphere is in evidence all over the area, so much so that across the river in the Texas city of El Paso, pastors noticed what was occurring and yearned for such a move of God in their city. Four of them decided to get together and do the same. They repented and began to pray together. Then on November 29, 1993, those four pastors invited other pastors to the Civic Center for a service of reconciliation. I was invited to minister. When I asked how many people we should expect, I was told between 50 and 200. When the doors opened, nearly 2,000 Christians representing many congregations, both Hispanic and Anglo, flooded the place. As pastors publicly repented and their congregations agreed, lives were changed on the spot. The joy of the Spirit was in evidence. Pastors immediately noticed a wider door through which to reach the lost. The next day, Anglo and Hispanic pastors gathered to discuss how to lay down the foundation for Plan El Paso, a plan to share the gospel with every person in their city. What happened? Satan and his demons lost their jurisdiction and the fullness of Christ in the church sent them back under the feet of Jesus. This was dramatically illustrated in Argentino, excuse me, this was dramatically illustrated in Argentina when on November 15, 1993, we called the church in La Plata to hold a prayer meeting in the main plaza, but the authorities had decided not to grant us the proper permit. There was ample room for our frustration to turn into anger with its devastating consequences. 
City Hall never said no, but it never said yes either. This ambiguous stance allowed the ruling authorities, closely connected to the Freemasons and to the most reactionary elements within the Catholic Church, a broad range of options. If we went ahead with our plans, they could jail us for conducting a meeting without a permit, or if we challenged them on constitutional grounds, they could claim that they never denied us permit. Okay? They never denied, they could claim that they never denied us the permit. If you conduct a meeting in a public place in Argentina without a permit, you are liable to be arrested and your equipment, sound system, vehicles, and so on can be confiscated. Now this reminds you, this book was written years ago, so the rules might have changed by now. Maybe they might have changed. And this book uh, was uh, copyright 1973, 1978, and 1984. Okay, so we have had those years on here. So I just want to explain that in case some of the laws or mandates might have changed in the in that area. So going back, in close cooperation with the pastors in La Plata and under the leadership of Sergio Scataglini, a dear friend and fellow missionary, we chose a path that allowed us to be wise as serpents while remaining harmless as doves. We waited until enough people had gathered to make a mass arrest impossible. Then the young people began to sing and that allowed us to spot the undercover agents. You can always tell the undercover agents apart because even though they can mimic the songs, they can never imitate the joy of the Lord. These undercover agents were there to surreptitiously identify the leaders in order to arrest them and thus bring the meeting to an abrupt end. Under Sergio's leadership, we ran a five-ring circus with action on several fronts so that no one could be identified as the leader. Finally, when enough people had gathered, the sound truck was quickly moved into place and before you could count to ten, an impromptu prayer meeting was underway. I will stop right there for this time. The battleground is the heavenly places. Dear God, I ask you in the name of Jesus to touch you, who's ever under the sound of my voice, 
I ask you to forgive them of their sins if they have committed it. And I ask you to save if they're not saved. Lord, whatever is they're dealing with, whatever issues, if it's sickness, if it's low finances, whatever it is, Lord, I ask you to touch them now. In the name of Jesus, rectify the situation, God. In the name of Jesus, God, I thank you, I thank you, I thank you, and I praise your holy and your righteous name. Amen.